You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a 30-year vet of the Marine Corps who now does amazing work with veterans and in the state of Texas. We'll get to that coming up in just a few moments. Our normal announcements as you are with us. Please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Guys, all of our shows are linked there, so if you're not following, it's the easiest way to get it. But we appreciate all the subscriptions, obviously, to not only our YouTube channel, where you can get uh, all the video versions of our show, but of course, wherever you get your podcast, subscribe there as well. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or into the sponsors tab. You'll get redirected to Amazon. And uh, you can do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations featured here on the show. Keep the Apple reviews coming. Uh, I always get a ping on an email when you guys leave an Apple review. They're great to hear. I appreciate the comments so much. But not only do we appreciate it, we certainly help grow the show that way through that algorithm that Apple uses to make this show popular. There's such a large hazard ground community. We want to continue to grow it and can't do it without your help. So leave those Apple reviews, keep them coming. Uh, We'll even try to post them on our social media sites just as a way to say thank you. Now that that's out of the way, let's get to this week's guest, 30 year vet of the Marine Corps, retired as an 06 Colonel, spent a good portion, almost the latter half of his career in the special operations community within the Marine Corps. He's got seven deployments in the war on terror, four additional deployments all overseas throughout a 30-year career. He works for the state of Texas for the Lower Colorado River Authority currently, and he's also an ambassador on the Honor Foundation. He is Keith Perry joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Keith, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Hey, Mark. Thank you very much for having me today. It's, uh, it's great, and I'm uh, looking forward to our chat today. Absolutely. And, and for those watching on the YouTube channel, we'll give you a hook of horns just because I know you're out in Austin, Texas. And there we go. You're, you're repping the Longhorns and they beat the hell out of Oklahoma. So uh, I, I believe it's worth uh, noting, at least at this point, as we record this, that, uh, you know, Texas thing, point, arrow's pointing up. The, the arrow is definitely pointing up. I was up at the uh, Cotton Bowl last week for the uh, Red, River, Red River rivalry game, and it was great. So I wasn't even concerned that it was a blowout. It was every time they scored, it was. Uh, our, our half of the stadium went crazy. Yeah, <laughs> certainly a great environment. All right, uh, outside of life in Austin, Texas, and uh, rooting for them horns, go back to the beginning and how and why you got in the Marine Corps, because I think we signed up uh, somewhere around the, the same time. Yeah, I think we did. I was listening to a couple of other ones that, that you had talked about, and I think we were uh, along the same lines. Uh, probably, I think we had uh, very similar stories as well, and, uh, and uh, Jake Harriman, as well, uh, who I served with, and I listened to oh, his wow. uh, previous podcast. Um, so I was uh, growing up in Pennsylvania and uh, didn't know, uh, uh, was raised by my mom and didn't really know that much about my dad other than the fact that he had been uh, killed in Vietnam. She didn't like to talk about it too much. So one day I uh, said, well, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do after high school. Thought about just entering the Marine Corps right out. And then uh, somebody brought up, well, why don't you apply for the service academies if you want to go into the military? And I said, well, okay, I hadn't thought about that, but sounds like a plan. Applied to West Point, applied to uh, Annapolis and didn't get accepted to Annapolis, but got accepted to West Point. And at the time, I'm, I 
you don't know anything. You're, you know, 17, 18 year old kid don't know anything about inter service transfers or anything like that. So I'm like, well, if I can't go into the Marine Corps out of Annapolis, then uh, I don't really want to go up to West Point. I'll try to get a Navy ROTC scholarship. So did that and uh, actually got accepted for it. But the school that I chose, uh, University of Pittsburgh, which did a crosstown uh, ROTC program with Carnegie Mellon, the year that I got there, they had put the, the Navy program on kind of a little bit of a hiatus and they gave me an Army scholarship. And I'm like, well, shit, if I wanted to be in the Army, I'd be up at West Point, <laughs> but I'll give this a try since I'm here. Didn't really have much choice. And uh, I started doing it. Didn't really didn't really like it. Uh, there was. It wasn't necessarily the, the, the classes themselves. Those were interesting enough. I just didn't like the, the leadership that we had at that particular program at that time. And uh, I decided, well, if I'm if I want to get to the Marine Corps, this may not be the route to do it. So I decided that I was going to enlist in the Marine Corps. So I went down to the map station in Pittsburgh and uh, talked to a recruiter more than happy to put me in. And uh, I did that. They, they often are. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's funny, funny how that happens. Huh? They're very zealous about getting people in and getting people to sign on the dotted line. It seems to work that way in their favor. So I did that. I did the delayed entry program and I went in and initially, uh, I guess that was, 1989 and went to boot camp on uh in may of 2020 finished out that year of school and then went down to paris island and then uh i was going to be with a uh with the reserve unit out of west virginia doing uh, machine guns uh i was a machine gunner in 0331 and uh, a couple days before i graduated boot camp is when uh, saddam invaded kuwait so we knew yeah. that, you know, depending upon how this was going to go. And uh, really, as soon as I got out of boot camp and joined my, my reserve unit, the mobilization orders were already starting to, to roll in. Wow. Uh, so we knew that we were going to be going to that. What did, uh, what did your mom say when you decided to enlist? Oh, geez. That was not good. <laughs> How'd that conversation go? Uh, so I get home from, uh, from, from the, uh, the recruiter and uh, – signing all the paperwork and everything. I call her up and I'm like, Hey mom, uh, guess what? Guess what I just did. She's like, I, I have no idea. I'm like, I just enlisted in the Marine Corps. And there was like dead silence on the other side of the, the phone. And I'm like, you still there? She's like, you did what? So she was not very happy with me because it really followed in a lot of my, my father's footsteps. He had been in, in school and had uh, decided that he wasn't, you know, that wasn't where his focus wanted to be. So instead of getting drafted, he wanted to enlist in the Marine Corps. And then uh, the, the odd thing was uh, I didn't tell her what my, what my MOS was until later on, until I got done with boot camp and I was home for Christmas leave. And uh, I told her that I was a machine gunner and that pretty much set her off because that was his MOS as well. Wow. And you didn't know so, that obviously, right? I didn't know that. I didn't know that because she really did not like talking about it. Uh, she did not like talking about it. So. Did she open up a little bit after you had told her that you were a machine gunner? She did, yeah. What, what, ex yeah. what exactly do you remember was, what, exactly uh, what she I mean, said? It was, it was, I don't remember exactly what she said. The gist of the conversation was that 
And while she was proud of me, she was just scared out of her mind as well. And then with, you know, the invasion of Kuwait, and even though I was in the reserves, the reserve unit getting called up, that had her uh, very worried because it was it was essentially, in a lot of ways, uh, very parallel to what happened with my father. Right. So I want to put a pause on this, though, because I think it's important to just stay here for one second. How much did you eventually ever learn about your father and what he did? And when did you learn it? Uh, I only learned, I didn't push too hard because even that conversation that we had at Christmas time, uh, I saw was very painful for. Her. Uh, so I didn't push very hard. And uh, the little bit that, the little bit that I, that I did learn, um, I learned on my own and it was just digging into, into archival records and so on like that. He was, uh, like I said, he was a machine gunner. She had told me that I had kind of verified that. Uh, and then where I, I learned a little bit more was, uh, she passed away, uh, when I was fast forward a little bit to when I was a second Lieutenant, I was at, uh, the basic school, uh, going through our, uh, our initial officer, uh, entry program. And she passed away and I had to take a little bit of emergency leave and go home and, and clean up some of the, the household chores. And I found a box that had a bunch of uh, mementos and letters and pictures and so on of, of hers when I was uh, packing up the house and uh, learned a little bit more from, from reading some of those and reading uh, and looking at some of the pictures. There was a picture of my father who was uh, in country at the time and he was uh, carrying an M60 and he was looking back over his shoulder uh, at whoever took the picture. And it was, it was creepy how much, he and I looked alike. And this was when I was much younger. So we were, we were probably around the same age or very close within three or four years of one another. And it was, uh, it was strange because never having met the man, you know, and only seeing the picture and this one in particular, just, it looked really, really, it was really, really a strong point for me to, to kind of remember him. And that's how I remember him right now. Did at any point in your career in the Marine Corps, did you ever get curious and ask somebody in the personnel department to go back and look up any other information on your father? No, I didn't. Really? No. Because that's what no. I would have done. Like, <laughs> I would have tried to leverage my, my rank at that point for all the wrong reasons, which you shouldn't do for the record. <laughs> but I'm saying, like, hey, you guys, you guys want to help me out here? Just walk into the personnel department with the little bird hanging out going, uh, there's an 06 in here. We probably should do whatever the colonel asks. And And... I, I, I genuinely, I would have been curious. I, I really wasn't. Wow. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was my mom that raised me. She's the one that, that, you know, got me to where I am and gave me my values and gave me my belief system sure. and everything. And uh, she did a phenomenal job. And uh, while I know I got a lot of traits from him as well, there wasn't anything that I, that I really had a, a strong desire to do. And probably that, that all related back to the fact that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, and I understand the reasons, but I mean, there were probably deeper ones that I don't understand. It really pained her to talk about it. So for me to kind of go digging around for it a little bit more, probably in my mind felt like I was, disrespectful. Yeah. I was disrespecting the, her, her memory and, and what she wanted her wishes. That's, I mean, listen, I'm not in a position to judge. I think that's fair. I just, I know myself just being me, I would have been, I would have been at least a little bit curious to figure out sort of, 
uh, sort of what happened. Maybe it was too much Top Gun we watched, the original one, the real one, you know, where, where Pete Mitchell wants to figure out what happened to his dad. So anyway, we digress. All right, back to uh, – I don't know if this will get me kicked off your podcast, Mark, <laughs> but I haven't watched the second one yet. Neither have I. Don't worry about it. Neither have I. <laughs> no, I, I just I, – because I can't – I can't get past total divergent thoughts here. I, I can't get past the idea of 35 years later, not only is he still in the Navy, not only is he still like, you know, commanding, but he's still flying. Like it just, it, whatever. Everyone says it's great. Everyone says they loved it. It was awesome. I just, you know, 57 year old fighter pilot just doesn't sit with me. You know, it doesn't add up. So. Yeah. You, you and me are thinking along the same lines. I'll eventually watch it. So but, I. Uh, I, I have the same thoughts as you. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I, and I think, I don't even know why I'm going to get into They did the storyline all wrong because what should have happened is that Pete Mitchell should have went back to the school as a civilian instructor and taught his own son the lessons he learned about what his father did and made him a better pilot. That was the storyline, in my opinion. That's the way I would have wrote it. That's actually a really good idea for, for a storyline. Now, now Top Gun 3 comes out next. See, there you go. As soon as somebody in Hollywood watches this, Top Gun 3 is out, and I won't get any credit for it. All right, let's get back to you. I'll look for you in the credits as a consultant. <laughs> so uh, you're enlisted in the Marines, all right, and you're getting ready to – you have orders to go to Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Does it actually come to fruition? Yes and no. We get activated, and we, uh, we head down to North Carolina, but we are designated as a replacement company or replacement unit. So our battalion got activated, uh, but we, we never ended up uh, leaving. So uh, in all of this, you know, you still have a desire to be an officer and a leader at some point. How does that all end up? That was easy. Cause a- after that, after uh, the enlisting and, and going down there, I, I enjoyed the, the time that I had on active duty, which was, you know, they had us down there for close to a year. So it was, uh, it was uh, over the 180-day mark, uh, approaching closer to the 10-month the 10, 10 mark. Uh, so I enjoyed that, and I realized that that's what I wanted to do. And if I wanted to do that, I needed to kind of buckle down, uh, stay with the unit while I was going through school since I had uh, given up the, uh, the ROTC uh, scholarship that I had had. Um, unless they came back and said, well, we'll give you the, the Navy scholarship once we reinstitute the program there at, at CMU. Uh, but they never did. So I just stayed with the reserves. And I decided that at that point, I was going to apply for the uh, the officer candidate program. And I went through the uh, the P- what's called platoon leaders class, mm-hmm. junior and senior. Uh, so you go down uh, to Quantico uh, two summers uh, for, I think, a six-month period, or no, not six-month, six-week period. Uh, or you can go one time for the uh, OCC class, which is just a 10, 10-week program. I was not a math major when I was in college, so I didn't figure out that six plus six equal 12, and I could have gone to a 10-week course instead of, like, putting myself through two additional weeks of of hazing. But, yeah. you know, that's yeah. what I did. You learn later on in so your career. I did career. that in my, uh, in my years at, at Pitt. I was going to say you learn later on in your career the devil's in the details, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's trial by yeah, error right exactly. there, to say the least. Um, nonetheless. <laughs> You get so much in a mindset of just do what you're told kind of deal. It's like you don't even bother to think twice about what you're being told and go, hey, wait, none of this makes sense. Um, you know, but again, obviously a different conversation. All right, so you end up getting your commission. You go out, you be a PL, um, a platoon commander, and all this is – I don't want to fast forward too much. I mean, anything significant between the time of your commission and, and 9-11? The, uh, the one thing that, that, that people uh, often uh... – raises their eyebrows, I guess I should say, is when I went back to school, uh, I, I 
didn't know what degree I wanted to get. And I liked uh, chemistry. I liked biology. I liked uh, anatomy, physiology. And people said, well, why don't you look at, at going into med school? And I said, well, I may look at that. And then somebody mentioned pharmacy school. So I actually got my, my bachelor of science in pharmacy from the university of Pittsburgh. Wow! And I used that for a number of months, just months uh, while I was awaiting my orders to the basic school and coming on active duty as a, as a second Lieutenant. Um, but yeah, at one point I was a registered pharmacist in uh, Pennsylvania and Virginia and uh, did that for, like I said, just a few months. And it was, uh, I had one interesting experience there. Most of it was, I, I had done, when I was going to pharmacy school, I had done a number of clinical rotations in the hospitals around Pittsburgh. So a lot of it was was hospital related, more clinical, and it was very interesting. I had never done really retail pharmacy, like a Rite Aid or a CVS or anything like that. But that's what I ended up doing for six, seven months before I got my orders to, to Quantico. And one of the problems that, that is, is still ongoing nowadays is uh, prescription drug uh, abuse. And I had, a, I had a woman come in and she was uh, trying to give me a story about how she needed to get some, a refill on her, on her uh, medication, which was a uh, schedule two narcotic. And she gave me some reason. I looked in her, in her uh, profile and I noticed that she was getting these things filled quite a bit. So I said, well, let me, let me, let me talk to your doctor. I need to get another prescription because you don't have any, you can't, just get a refill on these things. So I called the doctor and I said, you know, I think there's a problem here and I don't think I'm going to fill this thing. I think you need to have a conversation with your patient. And uh, so I told her that I said, Hey, you need to have a conversation with your doctor. I can't fill this right now. And, uh, but if you get another prescription, I'll be happy to fill it when you come back. So she came back a little bit later on and uh, she pulled out. It was, it was after the dinner crowd. So it was kind of uh, dead in the back. She pulled out a small handgun and she said she wanted her pills. And I said, did you talk to your doctor? And she said, I want my pills. I said, okay, I'll get you your pills. So I filled the prescription like I normally would. And as I went to hand it to her, she put the gun back in her purse to like pay me. And I jumped over the counter and I like wrestled her to the ground. I got her purse away from her. And at that point, all hell broke loose because my manager who must've been seeing something on the monitor and me like <laughs> doing this woman back by the pharmacy counter comes back and uh, asked me, you know, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and I said, I said, Just go away. I'll handle this. So I, I took her purse away. I took the weapon out of there and I talked to her and I said, listen, I'm not going to press charges. I said, you've got a problem you need to get solved, but I don't even know if this thing's loaded. It turned out it was. But uh, I called afterwards, and after she left, I let her walk out. I called her husband to come and retrieve what I figured was probably his gun. And I said, she needs to get some help. And uh, so that was that evening. Didn't think anything of it. I didn't press any charges. I talked my manager out of pressing any charges. And uh, right about two weeks before I was scheduled to uh, start, I'd already given my notice at, at uh, Rite Aid, and I was going to start. Uh, at Quantico in uh, my basic school class, I got a note back from this uh, from this woman, just thanking me profusely for giving her the second chance, giving her the impetus to go and get the help that she needed, and it was just it really really made me feel good about the decision that I had made uh, to help her and not like you know put her into the 
to have her arrested and put into the system um, because, I mean, it was it was obviously a problem. So that was the only kind of wild thing that happened before I actually started my, my military career. I mean, to say the least, that uh, that qualifies as uh, notable. Um, when you think back to that moment, um, is there anything in your military career that sort of, you know, lines up with that sort of same decision-making process? Because it seems you had the wherewithal at a really young age um, to recognize things that people at a young age wouldn't. You know, I mean, I, I feel like, man, I'd be like, there's a problem there, but it's sort of like not my problem to fix, you know? Uh, and you sort of take that hands-off approach where you realize, I think, throughout your military career, in more often than not in leadership cases, the, the hands-on approach when you get to serious-level problems like that is more than required. So, I mean, is, is there anything that you can relate, you know, to that experience that you drew off of throughout your military career? That's a really good question, Mark. Uh, at the time, I don't really know because I didn't, I came from a small town. We didn't really have drugs per se. I mean, we, we drank right. our fair share of beer for sure, but we didn't have drug problems. So I didn't really have any experience dealing with anybody personally yeah. in my life that had had, substance abuse issues or anything like that. It's just, I felt like I was doing my job, you know, as I had been trained to do it. Like if you see something like this, especially with this kind of narcotic that you have to take these steps. But when she came back, I wasn't, I wasn't really concerned. And I figured even after she left, I didn't know what I was going to do. She actually made it easier for me, Mark. She really did by putting the gun down, putting it back in her purse and allowing me to kind of get control of the situation. Cause had she walked out, I don't know what decision I would have made. Right. Yeah. So, no, I mean, also too, I wonder, you know, what, uh, had she not put the gun away, did you have any thought of how you would have handled it? Were you just going to give her the pills and let her walk and then call the cops? Well, that's, I mean, I was going to let her walk away, you know, and, and hopefully she didn't, she didn't shoot me, <laughs> but I, I really hadn't thought about whether I was going to call the cops. It was only after, I had the gun in my possession and I realized, and like, she was just, she was sobbing. Uh, I realized that it wouldn't do right. her or her family any good to, to press charges on this matter because I mean, I spoke to her earlier in the day. I saw how desperate she was. She was obviously desperate when she came back even more so. And uh, her doctor who was already in the loop, cause I had called in to talk to him about, Hey, she needs another prescription if you want her to have these, but I recommend that you have a talk with her. He was already in the loop, so I figured that there was there was a better way to do it than, right. than calling the cops. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you this much. You said something a moment ago that I feel will be a resonating theme throughout your military career, was which just, I just did the job that I was trained to do, right? As simple as that sounds, as yeah. a pharmacist, you did the job that you were trained to do, and guess what? Uh, that probably predicates a lot of your decisions throughout the rest of your military career. Uh, which we will get to here, because where are you on 9-11, and what is your job? What are you doing? I was an instructor. I'd just come back from one of my deployments. Mm -hmm. I was uh, on a med deployment, I think, on uh, one of the MUSE, Marine Expeditionary Units. And while we were out there, we had, uh, at the time, Colonel Allen, John Allen, who was going to be the next uh, commanding officer for the basic school, come out to our boat. And uh, I think he was, at the time, he was the military secretary to the commandant and he, the commandant had come out to the boat. So he was with him and somehow my name had been dropped to him and he interviewed me. I didn't know why or what for, uh, 
but he wanted to have a talk with me. And apparently my, my battalion commander had given him my name and a couple others as prospective candidates for instructors at TBS. So I talked to Colonel Allen and uh, shortly after getting back, I uh, received word that I was getting orders up to the basic school. So got up there in 99 and was there. Uh, I did uh, a couple roles there. I was uh, an instructor in the uh, war fighting group, which teaches all, all of the classes that are going through at any time. Then I was an SPC, a staff platoon commander mm-hmm. for one particular company. And then uh, after that, I went over to the infantry officer course as uh, as an instructor over there. And that's that, that was pretty special to me because the – Captains that are over at IOC take a look at the the captains that are working on the other side of the street at TBS, and they're the ones that make the nomination. They send it up to the major that runs IOC, who then sends it over to the colonel, and uh, it kind of works its way down from there. So you get nominated by by your peers to go over and work there, which was I thought pretty neat. So I went over to IOC, and it was uh, I was at IOC actually teaching uh, the mortar package. Uh, when 9-11 occurred. Uh, I was in LZ-7 at the basic school at Camp Barrett uh, going through gun drills with uh, the lieutenants at, before we went out to mortar week on uh, the following day. If I remember correctly, 9-11 occurred on a Tuesday. Is that yep, correct? that is correct. Yeah. Uh, Wednesday was the day we went out to the field and we shot Thursday and Friday. So uh, we were doing final drills, getting ready to go out to the field. Now, you actually don't get to your first uh, deployment in the war on terror until Iraq of 2003, correct? Correct. All right. Yep. So, I mean, in all this, so, you, you, have to, you have to finish out your time as an instructor. That must have been frustrating, to say the least. <laughs> it was, but it was also good in the fact that, I mean, well, I should say this. Other than my combat deployments, the, the, the tour at the basic school was the most rewarding uh, that I had, and as a B billet, I can't I can't stress or recommend that enough to 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 be at the basic school, and because you have a direct impact on the next generation of leaders for our Marine Corps, and it was a phenomenal experience. One to work with the likes of like Colonel Allen, uh, a lot of the other senior uh, officers that were there uh, that were uh, the leaders for the different companies and the different warfighting groups. And especially the captains, my peers that were there, top notch. I learned so much from them. It was unbelievable. I, hopefully I was able to contribute even a fraction of what I learned from, from all of my peers. Right. But they were absolutely phenomenal. And then that came around uh, when I deployed as a battalion commander uh, to Afghanistan, because at that point, I think there were 11 battalions in uh, in Helmand Province at the time, and uh, including like the, the infantry battalions, reconnaissance battalions, etc., and uh, all every single battalion commander except for one, who I still knew, but all ten of the eleven were peers of mine when we were instructors at at wow. the basic school or the infantry officer course. That's amazing. so it came around full circle. So you had that instant credibility, that instant network to uh, to lean on when you got into combat uh, in Afghanistan. So your first deployment to Iraq in what? Obviously, early two thousand three. Um, what's that? What's the mission? Where are you going? Do you know what you're doing? Kind of give me the background. Yeah. So when I first got to uh, when I was leaving uh, Quantico, I got orders out to one meth, 
And when you get orders to one MEF, you don't know exactly what you're going to be doing. You could be at the headquarters, you could be doing something else. So I ended up at, uh, at one MEF headquarters and I was not happy. Uh, I remember uh, on another podcast, Dave Taylor talking about similar instances yeah. where he was on a higher level yeah. staff. And yeah, I was, I was in the same boat. I could, I could relate. I could uh, talk to Dave about that. And uh, so I was on the one mess staff and uh, we were doing, we went over there fairly early in uh, October of 2002 to do a bunch of war games and drills and so on, which were ultimately the run up for OIF and the invasion. And it was, uh, it was interesting because I got put on a lot of, even though I didn't like the, the role, I was working both for the G2 and for the G3. Um, I, I put on a lot of working groups uh, for like uh, CAS in an urban environment, close air support in an urban environment. Yeah. Because I had just come from teaching that at, at uh, the infantry officer course. And they were like, well, you know, you've got some recent experience. So it was air officers and artillery officers and me uh, putting together this con op for how we were going to do this if we came to built up areas and had to fight our way through. So it was pretty interesting from, from that perspective. Uh, and then uh, later on, uh, so that was 2000. Can I interrupt one second and ask you something? I'm curious because yeah. to that point, you know, we hadn't fought in an urban environment in a really long time, you know, and I'm sure all the training you were doing at, at the schoolhouse wasn't in an urban environment. It was in a field or in a jungle or whatever, because Lord knows, hell, I went through RTC. We were still training on jungle environments, you know, uh, and I was in a pre-9-11 world. It was just like we never did mount, you know, um, you know, or urban, urban warfare until then. So how much of a change was that? It was a significant change. But after, uh, after 9-11 happened, and we realized that this may be more prevalent, I meaning the urban environment, fights in an urban environment may be more prevalent. We started taking a look at that. And there's a pretty substantial mount facility at Quantico, Virginia, yes. on the base there in the training areas. So we went out there and we, we started looking at a lot of those things and how we were going to do that, both from the perspective of, you know, you're attacking into an urban environment uh, and then you're defending an urban environment. And then how would you fight fight house to house through an urban environment yeah. with uh, supporting arms, whether that be, you know, machine guns or rockets or tanks uh, and aircraft. And it was, it was a big learning curve when we were discussing all these things, but it was great because we had, you know, a whole bunch of uh, really motivated captains that would go out there and we would just kind of war game these things and kind of do walk and talks through Mount uh, on best places to be, geometries of fire, things that we had to consider when you're doing all these things that you didn't necessarily, well, I mean, geometries of fire are always important, but they're even more important in an urban environment. Right. Like what civilians learn, you can't just drop bombs on an urban environment and, and call for fire and let the shit land wherever it wants. Like you get in trouble for that. You know, that's, that's not part of, you have to have be very precise almost to within, you know, feet or inches, if you will, uh, to, to have the, the, the effective combat power that you want and need without collateral damage. Yeah, and then you got to you got to consider terrain masking as well in an yep. urban environment. You may not be able to hit what you want to hit uh, unless you got a high angle fire uh, weapon, uh, or you get an avenue that you can you can fire down if you're talking about not easy. you know like rotary <laughs> pass. It's not easy. Uh, so you're doing this uh, in in Iraq, and uh, 
you know, at the beginning, the tempo of, I mean, you, were you there for the invasion? Because at the beginning, the tempo of operations was insanely high. It was. It was, it was insanely high. So we were, we were at uh, Camp Commando, which is just south of Mutla Ridge. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Scuds had started and the Patriot batteries were intercepting those things. And uh, General Conway, the one MEF commander, uh, was uh, like, hey, let's get everybody to the dispersion areas up near, uh, I forget the name of the giant training area uh, in Kuwait that everybody used before we went into country. Ali Al-Saleem? What's that? Arif John or Ali Al-Saleem? No, those were the bases. Those but the, I forget okay. the name of the giant training area. It was like, you know, north of Camp Commando in the in the desert. But uh, the dispersion areas were up there getting closer to the border, but giving us much more room to spread out. And uh, I remember getting ready to go, and uh, there was this just whooshing sound. We didn't know where it was coming from. It sounded like it was coming from the north. And Relinda Ridge uh, was the highest terrain in, in Kuwait. And it was Relinda Ridge, then it went over the bay, and then there was Kuwait City on the other side. So they were trying to hit Kuwait City, or at least that's the, that's the theory. But when this seersucker missile came over Relinda Ridge, it was terrain following. And when it dropped down very sharply over Relinda Ridge, it plowed into the ground about 50 yards away from, uh, from where I happened to be in Camp Commando. And we heard this thing, and I'm, like, running for my life toward one of the bunkers and, you know, trying to get my gas mask on at the same time I'm running because anytime there was scud missiles coming in or anything like that, you were, you were masked up. And I could see people, you know, ahead of me, like, come on, you can make it, you can make it. And this thing lands about 50 yards away off to my left. And I dust myself off. I'm like, I'm okay. I start walking toward the bunker. And I see like five guys coming toward me in full mop gear. And I'm like, what do these guys want? And it was our NBC officer and his crew. And they didn't know if the, uh, if this thing was carrying any kind of chemical munitions. So they're, they're erring on the side of caution. So like, Everybody like me that got caught kind of in the in the dust cloud was being carted off for uh, for observation, and uh, I, I didn't like that too much. Oh, but they uh, they sent their team out there. They checked the crater. They did some post blast analysis, and they're like, "No, nah, it was just an HE round." But uh, sitting there for those first ten minutes, as I'm like, you know, am I going to start drooling all over myself? Type thing was was uh, was not a fun experience. So I was more than happy to get to the dispersion areas at that point. I mean, listen, if it was any consolation, by the time I got to Iraq in 2005, you were issued mop gear and a mask, you put it in your tough box, and you never opened it the entire time and had to never walk anywhere with it. So, uh, yeah, we were still worried about Saddam and weapons of mass destruction. Anyway, different conversation. Uh, So after that deployment ends, uh, where are you headed to next? After that deployment, uh, I got selected uh, and interviewed for the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit. Okay. Uh, My old boss at the infantry officer course uh, was going over there as the opso for the Mew. Gotcha. And he said to the, the commander, like, Hey, this is a guy that you want for your special operations capable unit, the maritime special purpose force MSPF. And uh, so I went over there and I interviewed with, uh, with uh, Colonel Tom Greenwood and it went well. And uh, he requested me by name uh, to headquarters Marine Corps. And I got orders, you know, Still at the same base. I was still at Camp Pendleton. I went from, well, I was actually at Del Mar over to another building in Del Mar and uh, served with the 15th Mew for four years. So I did 
two deployments, back-to-back deployments with, uh, with 15th Mu and uh, both in the MSPF commander role and uh, had two different uh, force read comp platoon commanders and security elements and the whole nine yards, facts and uh, artillery officers that were working for me. It was just a great experience. And we did some really, really good, uh, good missions over there. And you're back to Iraq for the second time now. Yes. Yep. Now, I, I mean, are you at a point now where you are actually on the ground in tactical combat or? Yes. Okay. And uh, that, that actually happened as well when we were going up uh, during my first deployment. When we crossed the border, we, I was with uh, one of the forward uh, jump CPs. And it was the, the, the pace was fast. We didn't know like, there were still some units fighting down south in the Ramallah oil fields before mm-hmm. they all withdrew. Right. So we got into some contact down there. And uh, then uh, you remember that giant sandstorm that came in and basically covered uh, most of uh, Iraq and most of the, the uh, Saudi Peninsula? It was a huge, huge sandstorm. It was like biblical. Uh, in that thing, we, uh, we also ran into a unit that uh, just kind of stumbled upon us. And uh, that, was, that was another issue that we dealt with. Um, but then after that, when we got up to Baghdad, uh, we, we initially, our final location was in uh, the, the palace area of Babylon. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty neat. We, uh, we built that area out. One of Saddam's palaces was right there. I actually stayed in that thing for a little bit. Nice. Um, it, was, uh, it was pretty neat. And then you got a chance to see the actual historical ruins that some uh, German archaeologists had unearthed in the 1920s. So that was with inside our perimeter as well. So we got a chance to tour that. But after that, it was just going into stability operations and the counterinsurgency operations uh, until I left in September of 2003. So fast forward 2003, I go over to the 15th mu at that point. During this second deployment, are you guys taking any casualties? I mean, what's the level? Because if you're there post-2005 or 2005, I mean, you're talking about the, the apex of the violence, which preceded the surge in 05 and 06. Yeah, we, we, we got over there, and our initial deployment there was to the uh, southern portion of Baghdad and to the uh, northern Babel province. Mm-hmm. So we were working a lot of uh, We're talking about Medea, Diwania area over there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So we were going after a lot of the, uh, the high-value targets. I mean, they were having everybody and their brother. I mean, they had the task force over there as well that was obviously running, running missions as well. But we were working for uh, Third ID at the time. Uh, our MU came and fell in on them, and we were we were operationally controlled by them. And Task Force was there, and they were running missions as well. And a lot of times we would uh, – I, I called it prostituting ourselves out. So if they needed an additional force that would, would provide containment or they had more objectives than they could take down, we would support them as well. But we also, uh, in, in, in doing so, we also gained some contacts and some relationships with some of the, uh, the support assets that they were using, like the stoplights, uh, you know, the EA-6Bs and the, the stoplight missions that were being run, and some of the, uh, the AC-130 gunships. So on nights that they weren't running missions, we would ask to use some of their, their assets as well. And then, uh, so we, yeah, we had, we had a number of, of very good missions that we ran 
we, we captured uh, our fair share of, uh, of HVTs, some in the top 15. So I was very proud of the efforts that, that we put in. And thankfully, very thankfully, we did not have any casualties during that deployment. However, the, the last mission that we ran, we were the last mission to have run for any, any, any units in 15th MU. And we ran it into an urban area, I'm sorry, a rural area that we've been doing missions for a while. And unfortunately, uh, I guess RTTPs or maybe it was just bad timing, bad luck, who knows. Uh, the Army unit that came in and backfilled us, uh, we were still in country two days later after this mission. They ran out and they were running one of their first missions and they hit a 500 pound bomb underneath the buried in one of the dikes and it went off underneath one of their vehicles and it was a catastrophic kill. And I just felt horrible because we had been driving on that exact same road, that exact same area two nights before. I mean, it gets to a point where, um, you know, that may have been one of the first encounters that you have to, but unfortunately it's probably not your last. And, and over the course of your career, you end up dealing with these things more and more at the time. Did that emotionally affect you in, in any given way? Yeah, it did. Uh, because we had been, we had been conducting some civil military operations down in that area in order to get Intel that we could then action as far as bad guys. So I felt really disappointed that, that it was in an area that we had done a lot of these CMO operations, you know, uh, going out to provide security for engineers to put in a new well so they didn't have to walk two miles to the Euphrates River to get water or uh, providing veterinary support for their sick animals or we, uh, one of our corpsmen helped uh, get grandma get better. So I felt really disappointed uh, and frustrated that we didn't get the intel that would have allowed us to prevent this from happening. Uh, and there was also, you know, a little bit of guilt as well, because like I said, literally we were on that dike, that road two nights earlier. And, uh, the way, the way we, the way we provided flank security, the way, cause this is at the time when they were starting to use the RCIEDs, the remote controlled IEDs. Yep. Yeah. You know, if we'd been out there and we had had flank security, could we have caught the trigger, man, all kinds of things run through your head. I mean, that you've really got no control over, but. You can't help what your brain thinks. Um, and, you know, if we'd had more time to do a proper turnover with the new unit in the ground, hey, don't just drive blindly down these roads. you got to put out flank security on these things. Uh, you know, those kind of lessons learned. So, yeah, there, there was there were some hard, hard lessons there and still feelings that I, I – they get me choked up now. And, look, I mean, it's, you know, obviously it's understandable. Um I think any of us who have been in a combat zone in any given sort of situation could replay it and say, I do this different. I do that different. Um, then you always, I always have to remind myself that let's replay it again. There's absolutely no guarantee that the enemy doesn't do something different, right? Like there, there's, there's always a counter and that's what we learned nonstop during deployments. It's whatever TTP we came up with, they countered and then we countered again and they countered around and around this, you know, ridiculous chess match would go for 12 months, 15 months, however long you were there, all just trying to stay alive. And all they were trying to do is get rid of you. So um, I, I, I try to avoid the replay game um, and, and get stuck in that because I know it's a, a fruitless exercise that ends only in frustration, right? That's a, that's a really good way to look at it, Mark. And I appreciate that. I really do, because I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before. Like, 
you know, even if I had done X, Y, and Z, like I just talked about, they would have adapted their, their, uh, their actions as well. So that's, that's a great point. We get so trained into thinking that, I don't want to say this, we get so trained into thinking we're better, which we are, right? Like we're better at combat than anybody on the planet. Like that, that, there's, there's a litany of evidence on our side for that. That said, that doesn't mean we win every single engagement. And it also doesn't mean that, that there aren't other, the enemy isn't as good in certain areas either. And so we almost get this false sense of no matter what we do, if we execute it the best way we know how, we're always going to come out on top. And that's just simply not the case in combat. It's, it, it just, it never will be. This isn't, this isn't a football game, right? This isn't, if I block all these guys, my guy will run for the touchdown. That's the way I drew it up. That's the way it's going to execute. It just, it, that's not a realistic expectation. So um, there are a hundred other things that, that go on in any given situation. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, that's that's spot on. All right, next you're moving into uh, your first taste of the special operations community as you move on to MARSOC. Did you even know what this was before you got there? I did. Yeah, I had. Uh, I mean, I knew I knew I had a bunch of friends that had been in debt one, mm-hmm. so they had they had done the initial uh, inaugural deployment and they they supported the SEALs and they were working out of I believe uh, Baghdad area as well. I know where the they deployment. were. So I knew, <laughs> and then I had heard uh, through the grapevine, you know, the 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 way Marsoc was coming together, and it was. It was interesting to me. I thought this was going to be a great, great billet. Didn't know what I was going to do over there. I was, uh, I was still, uh, I guess I was at that point a mid, mid-grade major. Mm-hmm. So company command, uh, you know, maybe uh, OPSO or something like that. I didn't realize I'd be coming in as one of the senior majors and uh, take over the XO duties uh, right from the get-go. So I did that. Uh, when I got over there, that was, uh, that was one of my original, uh, that was my original billet when I landed in Marsoc at first, what the, at what then was called MSOB, Marine Special Operations Battalion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been since redesignated uh, using the Raider moniker, so now it's 1st Raider Battalion. But it was out at, out at Camp Pendleton in the old uh, Force Reconnaissance Compound out at, uh, wasn't Horno, I forget the name of the camp. It'll come to me, but yeah, that's where we were. And, uh, it was going to be a significant growth phase. We probably went through, oh my goodness, three, three, uh, organizational realignments or reorganizations while I was there because originally the model, it was modeled off of the MSPF. You had a force recon platoon or an assault platoon. You had a security platoon, and then you had your support elements as necessary and it was modeled on that on that very model, and people didn't like that. They wanted to go more in a different direction. Uh, so we looked at different configurations, um, still utilizing the two platoon concept. But then ultimately, uh, what what it boiled down to, and I forget exactly how it all came about, but we we essentially went to the uh, the SF model. I mean, we we essentially created. An ODA, right. we called it an MSOT, a Marine Special Operations Team. The co- composition was a little bit different, but it was it was a lot closer to an ODA design than it was to what it started off as. Yeah, I mean it's a, uh, and part of that too, I think. And then correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of those changes came from what we were facing and up against, and what was needed to 
effectively execute combat operations, right? Like uh, the the static nature of, I mean, look, the Green Berets have been around, especially, you know, in the Army side since the, since theoretically the late 50s uh, and beyond. So they had already had a head start on you guys from that standpoint. But figuring out what you needed and where you needed it and how you needed it was part of why there was a constant shift in at least the organizational nature of what you guys were doing, correct? Yeah, that was that was a big part of it. Absolutely. Uh, I think that we want to make it a little bit more nimble, but still uh, provide uh, something that, that the Marine Corps prides itself on, and that's our task organization ability. And so, I mean, everything we, we try to design, we design as a MAGTAP, a Marine Air Ground Task Force. And we wanted to kind of do the same thing here. So we had uh, within the MSOT, you had uh, two elements. Then you had uh, three of those made the company. And then over and above that, you had a whole bunch of enablers. In fact, over half of the, the MSOC, the Marine Special Operations Company, or now the Raider Company, was comprised of uh, enablers, uh, support personnel. So you had the, the dog handlers, you had the JTACs, you had the FOs, you had the intel specialists, yeah. both human and SIGINT, and then a generalist. You had mechanics. So the thing that was nice about that was when this MSOC deployed, it was fully sustainable. They had their communicators. They had everything they needed in order to go and do whatever they needed to do, wherever they needed to do it. They could be standalone Mm -hmm. for any period of time. And it worked out very well because one of the first deployments in this configuration was to Helmand Province. Yep. And no, I guess it was Farah Province, just north of Helmand. And uh, it was uh, it was from our company, from our battalion, and it was one of my buddies that was the company commander. And he said it was great because they had enough ass to come together and fight as a traditional conventional company to get into the spaces that they needed to to fight into the green zone. And then from there, they could branch apart into their into their raider teams yeah. in order to go and do the village stability platforms. And if they needed to move again or they needed to reinforce one another, they could all come back together. Yeah, and that was a huge difference between that and the Army Special Ops because that's how I got tied into Special Ops. They needed augmentees. They needed, they, they needed low decisions. They needed signal guys. I mean, yes, they have them all inherently, but what they can do given the scope of that mission sort of limits them because it's only one or two people doing it as opposed to you know a handful of 15 or 20 or a platoon-sized element that supports those guys in the fight. So uh, I certainly understand the difference there. Um, otherwise I never would have had my connection to the special ops community, which was, you know, the, the pinnacle of my, my entire career still to this day. So, uh, I certainly, certainly understand that. And, and, it, and it's gotta be a, and I guess Marines pride themselves on this, forgive me if I'm wrong, but you know, that self-sustaining nature of you guys not wanting to, it's the whole, we're good. We don't need you. We're Marines. We're good. We'll, we'll, we'll do this kind of deal that you could get in there as a conventional force and then deploy as unconventional made it very, very appealing to you guys. It did. And like I said, that was because one of the, I think the first, first one or maybe the first two companies that went out from our battalion went out under the old construct with the, the the platoon, uh, the platoon organization. So the first one that actually got into Afghanistan, like I said, that was configured this way, worked out very well. And uh, it was, it was even noticed uh, when I got to, when I was older and I worked for uh, Alvin McRaven and uh, the vice commander, General Trask in mm-hmm. the Pentagon, it was noticed by, by Admiral McRaven, like, hey, they provide us a different capability. MARSOC provides us a different capability than do the SEALs, than do the SF guys. 
uh, because of the way they've configured themselves. And yet it was, it was a pretty painful process, you know, three or four years of these reorganizations. But I think we finally got it right. And Marsoc is, is rocking it now. Really, yeah. they, are, they are. Let me, let me ask you, um, I know in the time in Marsoc, you have shorter deployments. You go back and forth, and, and, and I'm sure you spent them. But when you went to uh, Camp Leatherneck in Helmand Province in, what was it, uh, 2011, 2012 timeframe, was that your yeah. last combat deployment in the War on Terror? Two of them there, yes. Okay, two of them there. But so they, did, they were your I last two, two and the last one as a commanding officer, correct? Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, I, I only I only ask just because, you know, obviously when you go there as, as a CO, uh, at that level it's a little bit different than what you were, you know, back as a captain working on, you know, air, close air support in a mountain environment. You know, I mean, it's, it's a lot of years. And, again, folks, it's, it's just hard to cover 30 years in any reasonable amount of time that uh, – uh, that you guys can consume and listen to, but uh, all that said, when you, when you look back on that first time as a close air support captain, and now you're a commanding officer, you know um, what's some of the biggest differences you notice? Not only and beyond the fighting itself, because again, Iraq is a different environment than Afghanistan. Uh, the, the 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 type of combat and kinetic operations are completely different. But you know, it's a lot of learning, it's a lot of growing, it's a lot of achievement in all those years. Um, is it, is it hard to fathom how you got from point A to point B sometimes? Uh, yeah, I, I still surprised myself that I was, I was in as long as I was. Uh, but I, I had some really awesome mentors and some, some great, uh, great Marines that I served with that really kept me going throughout the entire time. And that was really what it was. I mean, a lot of times, you know, as you know, Mark, from, from your, your service, you don't you're you aren't in there for the uh, for the nonsense that you put up with, with within the services, you know, shot calls and hurry up and wait. And, you know, these kind of things, you do it for the people that you're with. Yeah. And that that Absolutely. was no different for me. Uh, the bosses that I had, the Marines that I that I got a chance to serve with and the ones I was honored to lead. Those are the ones that really kept me going. Uh, but point I want to bring up about uh, my 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 older years as a battalion commander so I got I got a chance when I got selected for battalion command. Um, quick funny story on that. My boss, I'm at I'm at first MSOB. My boss just gets back from doing a two week uh, in country site visit because we're going to be sending out the first special operations task force, Soda Fate One from from Marsoc. Army hoped we could do it, didn't think we could. The SEALs I don't think thought we could do it because we were so junior. I mean, hell, we were only a force for like two and a half years. Right. And uh, they're like, how are you gonna? How are you guys gonna put together a battalion level task force to control all of soft in a particular area? But we figured it out. But anyway, my boss gets back from that, and I get a. I'm, I'm back briefing him, and he goes, and the, the duty is at the at the the commander's hatch. And I'm like, what? What do you want? He's like, you got a phone call, sir. It's some general. I'm like, some general. I said, that's not very helpful. So <laughs> I, also, I get the phone also, and I go. That's also very nerve wracking. Just some generals on the phone for you. Oh, at that point, I, I didn't care. I was. I constantly got phone calls from either General Halick or General Robeson. If if my commander wasn't there, uh, he would call right out and just talk to me. So I wasn't worried about that. But I'd let, it's nice to know who it is. So I'm like, uh, this is Major Perry. Who's this? And he's like. Uh, he said it real fast and I'm like, okay. He goes, is this major Perry? I'm like, yes. Is this major Keith Perry? Yes. Is this major Keith Perry? And then he reads off my social security number. I'm like, 
yes. Well, you just get to the damn point. <laughs> I said, and then I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, wait a minute. I recognize his voice. And I go, hey, Salami, if that's you, I said, this is really bad timing. I got my boss just got back from Afghanistan and I'm back briefing him. So like, give me a call later with whatever joke you're pulling. And at the time, Brigadier General Stewart goes, I don't know who Salami is. <laughs> Brigadier General Stewart. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry, sir. I said, I didn't quite catch your name the first time. And you sounded like a buddy of mine. I thought he was pulling a joke on me. He goes, no, I just called to congratulate you. I said, oh, okay, sir, for what? He goes, you haven't heard? I said, no, sir, heard about what? He goes, the command screening board came out. You got selected for command. Your boss didn't tell you? I said, no, sir. I said, my, uh, my commander and uh, my, my commanding general as well just got back from Afghanistan doing a PDSS. And he's like, well, then let me be the first to congratulate you. And I said, oh, thank you, general. Very much appreciate the phone call. I said, if I may ask, uh, what command did I get? He goes, you got first radio battalion. And there's a pause. And I go, they do signals intelligence, don't they? And there's another pause on his end, like, oh, my God, who is this idiot that doesn't know, like, what our Marine Corps units do? And he goes, yes, that's what they do. And I go, okay, good. Well, thank you very much. So I'm sure he got off the phone is like, how can I get this guy out of this billet? Because he obviously <laughs> doesn't even know what they do. That's but good. Uh, so That's that goes to my point that when I first got there, I really had never done signals intelligence. I had used signals intelligence quite extensively in Iraq right. for actionable, actionable targeting. Mm -hmm. But I, I just pulled aside my, my subject matter experts, my, my staff NCOs, my, my warrant officers who were like hugely a wealth of information. I had some junior officers that went through uh, what's called Marine Cryptologic Support Battalion at, at NSA, and they trained me up. Uh, but all I really had to know was if I get called down and I got to talk to one of my friends who's a battalion commander about what capabilities and how to employ SIGINT, I had to do that. I wasn't going to be the guy turning the little knobs and doing that kind of the technical stuff. I just sure, had to know sure. enough to be good on the employment aspect. So I did that. I learned as much as I could from, from the Marines that I served with. But what I also did was I focused on, on my background and coming from an infantry background, infantry uh, officers course, and those kind of things. And then the special operations stuff I had done with the MU. Uh, hey, we're going to go back and we're going to train like we did. We're going to do individual phase. We're going to do collective team phase. And we're going to do collective phase. And we're going to train just like we did when we were sending MSOCs out the door. Uh, because that's really how these guys were going to be deployed. They were going to be chopped up and sent out to support these battalions in essentially a, a small special operations team concept. Right. And I just did that. So I focused on weapons. I focused on communications. I focused on call for fire, on nine lines and Kazavak. That's what I did. That was my value to the battalion, quite honestly. It wasn't from a signals intelligence perspective, uh, but that's what I tried to do for them. And I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah, you bring up an, in an interesting sort of subcontext um, that I've learned throughout my career. And again, I, it goes back to my time in the special ops community. I, I always have chosen to do more with less. It, it's, there is, if you get the right, 15 outstanding soldiers are better than 50 average ones. You can do more with less when deployed correctly. And you talk about those small teams going out and being able to learn and be autonomous and operate in an environment where they don't necessarily have left and right limits and they don't necessarily, you know, have the clearest set of directions, but know how to figure things out. 
makes you so much more combat effective. Look, I 100% agree. There is, there is a time and place for unity of force and economy of effort, right? Like th- th- those, that overwhelming mass fire and power serves a purpose. More often than not, though, it, the way we fight wars now against an enemy that isn't wearing a different uniform and doesn't look like they're the enemy, it's so much harder for that mass economy of force to actually be deployed in a way that makes sense. Right. And so, you know, you get this, you get this, um, th- this idea as a leader that we, we have to, you know, what, what, what do the generals always say? I'd rather have and not need than need or not have, which is always asinine. Right. Like, and, and I experience it in the guard to a certain extent, because whenever there's something gets called up, well, let's call up everybody, just bring them all in. And then if they'll stand around for days on end doing absolutely nothing, because I'd rather need and not have than have and not need. Uh, I, you know, I'd never subscribe to that theory. You know, just get me the right people. Get me the people who know what to do, and, uh, and, and, and we can still operate. And then if we need more, we know how to spin things up quick enough that those folks can sustain operations for whatever given time needed. So, uh, you know, it's just it, – it, you just struck a chord with me when you talked about those small unit teams that go out there and can be completely effective when done the right way. I, I, I agree with everything you said, but I do subscribe to the better to have it, not need it, than need it, not yeah. have it. And two is one, one is none type thing. So I'm, you know, and, and, and that caused me to like. On time, on time is five minutes, five minutes early. Being there exactly on time is late. Yeah. You know, gotcha. So, but yeah, to your point, I mean, the things you said about, uh, you know, the smaller teams going out and being able to do those things, we're having to do that right now because if we fight a near peer enemy, we can't mass ourselves. We can't be in large formations. No. Otherwise, if you get targeted, you're going to get killed. If they can find you, you're dead. Yep. So we need to be able to, to hide, and that's going to require smaller units, more dispersion, uh, in mutually supporting positions and so on. But, I mean, it, it applies now even to the near-peer concerns that we have, vice just the insurgent battles that we had had for, you know, the past 20 years. You um... – at the time, you probably don't know this was your last combat deployment, but you go off to uh, NDU, National Defense University, you further your military education, and then you end up in D.C., right? I'm sure that must have been a, a lovely phone call that you got. Well, I got the phone call for D.C. when I found out I was going to National Defense University, which is in D.C. Right. And that was fine because I had already kind of been told, hey, when you get done with National War College, year there, you're going to go down to Tampa and you're going to be on the staff down there at SOCOM. And I'm like, okay, that's good. So load my, uh, at this point, I didn't have any kids. Load my wife up and we drive from California to DC. And we're living in in, uh, Alexandria, Virginia. We just barely get all the boxes in the house when like this humongous storm comes through and knocks out power to some areas for like three or four weeks. We lost power for a couple of days. And she's like, she had been in California and Arizona and she hadn't, she had visited other places, but she hadn't lived on the East coast. She's like, where the hell have you brought me? <laughs> she said, it's hotter than Africa right here. We just had a storm that knocked out power for like three weeks for like people in Maryland. Like what the hell is going on? And I said, I said, this is a freak storm. It'll get better. So fast forward a little bit to October now. So this is July. 
October of what year? Of twenty thirteen? Hurricane Sandy comes up the East yeah, Coast. Giddy up, I remember. Right that. over DC, runs up and you know, crushes your hometown as well. And she's like, freak accident, huh? She's like, let's get the hell out of here as quickly as possible. Well, in October, a couple months before that, I guess uh, September, we found out that Nancy was pregnant with our twins. So we were overjoyed, and I've got my 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 pregnant wife. In, I also uh, have twins, by the way. You do? Yes, boy, twin boys. Okay. So I got boy, girl. Twin dads, unite, yay. Always play yes. zone defense. You never play man coverage with twins. It's always zone. It's always exactly. zone. Exactly. That's exactly you right. play man, you're screwed. <laughs> the... Uh, so uh, fast forward now, it's, uh, I guess, March time frame. It was early March. And it's a Thursday, and I get my orders. We're going to Tampa, baby. I got my orders. They're right here. The next day, we go into uh, for a normal checkup. Something We, we want to take you upstairs and, and look at something a little bit more closely. Well, that's never good, you know? So we go upstairs and we get checked out and lo and behold, uh, there was some premature labor going on and uh, long story short, scariest night of my life, bar none. But I mean, my wife's a trooper. She held out for quite some time in order to let the kids develop a little bit more, get some drugs on board in order to help their their breathing and whatnot. But eventually they came early and uh, scariest night of my life because, you know, they're carting her away and they wouldn't let me in the room because they opened up the door and they're like look in there you got your wife you got the anesthesiologist you got three OBGYNs you got two bassinets you got two NICU teams and uh and then you got you and your six foot four size you almost passed out when you told us to uh to take care of your family we can't have you falling over in here and knocking somebody that's carrying one of your little babies so it's you know it's Midnight, it's snowing outside in uh, in these in the Virginia area, and I'm all by myself until one of my best friends, uh, who is actually uh, now one of the uh, one of the godmothers to our kids, came drove through the snow in a BMW, not made for the snow, and uh, came and came and brought me food and uh, and a beverage at the hospital uh, on a snowy night after my kids were born. Wow. So scariest night of my life because you're, you're completely out of control. You can't control anything. I can't call in close air support. I can't call, call in a QRF or anything. But uh, by the next morning, everything had stabilized. Everything was good. And kids were fine. They spent some time in the NICU, but Same. nothing lasting, and they're all good. Same. Yep. And wife was good. I mean, you, you know how it feels. It's yeah. just <laughs> such a relief. They did just, the same thing oh, to me, by the way. You can't come in here. I'm like, what do you mean I can't come in there? Yeah. What are you talking about? I will knock you on your ass. Move. <laughs> I like, I even pointed to myself. I'm like, like I'm in scrubs. I got this silly little hat on yep. my head. I'm all ready to come in. And they're like, no, you can't. You're, yeah. you're, you're too big and you're too big and clunky. And it, it was, uh, and it, you're right. For those who don't like, I don't know how this is with regular kids. Cause I've only had twins. Um, but it's like a circus in there, man. They got like, speaking <laughs> of small arms teams, like there's literally for each kid, there's like seven or eight people handling each child. I'm like, what are all you doing here? Yeah. Like, how did they do this in 1500s before, like, you know, medicine came around? There's like one person, yeah. you know, per kid. But anyway, it is a circus. So, yeah, I was, I was kind of surprised at that. I was more surprised when, uh, 
when the doctor said, you know, the, the, the doctor giving the birth goes, could we get some music in here? And some guy went up and hit a button and music started playing. I'm like, what are we taking playlists? What are we taking requests? She's got a music guy. How does this work out? Can we connect an iPod or something? Anyway, uh, there was a lot of people in the room to say the least. Yes. But I remember yeah, it all. There was. And then literally with the, t- right. like, but like you, they got whisked away to the NICU in seconds. You had enough time to hold them, take a look at them, grab a picture and gone. That was it. Well, Ashley was uh, oddly enough. Ashley was was lined up for for entry. She was good. She was in ready to go down the the normal route. But obviously, because there were there were some complications, there was an emergency C section involved. Right. But my 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 little buddy uh, Zachary was wedged up with his head underneath Nancy's rib cage, pressing on her diaphragm and into her lungs. Uh, and that was strange because that was in the exact position that I was when I was born. I was in a breach position as well. So like father, like son, there you like, go. Yeah. So they're like, well, you know, are we going to have to like spin this guy around? What's he going to do? By the time they took Ashley out, they turned around and the next team stepped in. His head was already like kind of popped out. And like, he was like, get me out of here. He had, he had spun himself <laughs> around and was like ready to come out. So everything was easy at that point. It was easy, but you don't know that going in. I mean, that's why they have the the, the circus in town. I mean, that's why yeah. they have all that. He uh, uh, at least he's got good orienteering, like his old man. You know, just just didn't yeah. f- figure some terrain association. Look, there's a light down there. I'll go that way. Uh, yes. so there, there you go. He followed it on the way out. So that kept you there in D.C. longer than obviously it did. So the next day, I uh, my my wife's still recovering in the ICU, um, and when I say she's tough, she's tough. She woke up the next morning looked right at me, sat up and pulled her, uh, her trach tube out and, and was basically like, I'm done on this thing. And she was fine after that. I mean, the, 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 the nurses couldn't get there. And even though they were right outside her room in time in order to stop her from doing that, she just yanked that thing out. And she's like, how are the kids? She, she kind of croaked it out cause just pulling that tube out. But she said, how are the kids? And I said, they're doing fine. I said, you did a great job. So, uh, we got a chance to get her over there, I think later in that day, uh, to, uh, to see them. Um, so that worked out pretty well, but I had to go outside and call, uh, and I called down to Tampa and I spoke to the senior Marine that was down there at the time, general Laster. And I said, sir, I'm a, a Lieutenant Colonel Perry. I said, you probably saw me on your inbound roster. I'm going to have to ask my orders to be rescinded. And this is why. And I told him the story and he goes, he listened and he goes, How's your family? And I said, scary night last night, but everybody's great. He goes, okay, rule number one, you take care of your family. He goes, bar none. He goes, don't worry about school. You'll get through school. He goes, if, it, if you don't get through school and you're having any trouble, you let me know and I'll talk to Ferris. And Ferris was a senior colonel that was at the, at the school. He goes, I'll straighten him out. And I said, I don't think it'll come to that general, but I appreciate it. And then he goes, uh, rule number two. I take care of the SOCOM family, especially the Marines. He goes, how about if we change your orders and you work for the vice commander in the Pentagon? And I said, that would be great, sir. He goes, that way you can maintain continuity with care for your kids and your wife, and you still work for SOCOM. And, you know, maybe we find a way to get you down here later on. I'm like, that would be fantastic, sir. I said, I'll do that. I said, as soon as we get off the phone, I'll call my monitor. And uh, General Lasser jumped up and down. He's like, hey. What's rule number one? I said, take care of my family. He goes, that's right. He goes, I'll call the monitor for you. He goes, you just take care of your family. I said, General, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, sir. So hung up, go back in. 
end of the day, come out and I got a couple messages on my phone from my monitor. And he's like, Hey, I just had a major general Laster call me. He goes, don't normally get those kind of calls, but he goes, I understand what's going on. Your orders are already changed in the system. You're, you're staying in the Pentagon. So don't worry about moving. So that was, that was fantastic. You essentially ran into a freaking unicorn. <laughs> like that's not a, a tack that a lot of senior leaders deploy often. You know, because they, when you get to our level, Keith, you know this, you kind of get sucked up a lot into a mentality and a leadership style that is overall better needs of the big picture, right? I mean, it must have been extremely comforting to hear all of that going. Because if General Laster had said to you, all right, I'll give you two weeks and then you have to report here, you would have been, Roger, sir, got it. Thank you for the two weeks. And that would have been the end of the conversation. Probably, yeah. You, you wouldn't have thought twice. You had to figure it out. Yeah. And and your wife would have went along with it and everything would have, you know, I mean, barring any, you know, major setbacks health-wise with your kids at that point. Right. That, that's just, wow. Um, you know, there, there, there should be more of that. Unfortunately, there's not, but there should be. Well, I will say this, Mark. So the, the Marine Corps has a saying, they, they drill it into you at boot camp, they drill it into you at OCS. And it's mission first, Marines always. Mm-hmm. And I always flip-flopped that. I always did. From the, from the, from the time I, I heard it, I said, that doesn't make any sense to me. I would say Marines first, mission always. Because if you, do, if you take the time and you care for your, your Marines, you develop your team, you train them. And I'm not talking coddling them. That's, that's the farthest thing from my mind. Right. You train them hard and you're, you hold them accountable they're going to know their job and they're going to be able to do whatever damn mission they get handed. So the mission, the mission is always going to come, you know, always going to get done, but it's all based on the fact that you took care of your team to begin with from the time you stepped in front of them as a platoon commander or as a platoon sergeant or as a fire team leader, it doesn't matter. You took care of whoever you were responsible for and you developed them into a unit that could do all of those missions. And that's kind of the way I always looked at things. And I think the, what that happened, what happened with me with that was I gravitated toward other leaders that had that same kind of philosophy. Even if they didn't say it the same way I did, they said it, they said it in their actions. So I learned from people that reinforced that viewpoint of mine. And even though I didn't know General Laster, I, you're right, I got lucky. I ran into a magical unicorn when I talked to General Laster. But... Uh, after that, when General Laster came up to the Pentagon and he was the, uh, the chief of staff for the Marine Corps, uh, I got a chance to work with him very closely there. And I realized he was that kind of leader. Wow. He absolutely was. So looking back in hindsight, what he did for me wouldn't have been a surprise if I had known him better at that point. So he was that kind of leader. And I was fortunate, actually very blessed throughout my career to, I won't say all, but the vast majority of the, the the leaders that I worked for, the commanders that I worked for, were of the same mindset. And it, it helped develop me to what I am today, as a matter of fact. So you end up spending the final, let's call it, what, six years all in total at the Pentagon in some size, way, shape, or form of your career. You are now one of those staff pukes in D.C. that people on the ground love to hate. That said, I kid. But, you know, I mean, obviously, look, it's a different it's a different sight picture, right? It's a different aperture and, and – your, your, your responsibilities are different. What about that job, both of the jobs you had in the Pentagon, both as a senior executive director to the vice commander and the senior executive director um, 
for special operations in, in, at Marine headquarters. Um, what's the biggest difference for you between not only doing that job, but being removed from the combat role that you had known for so long? I would say when I, when I first got to SOCOM in the Pentagon, I was acting as a, as a liaison for the J3 and the J5. So I was still working operational matters. Uh, and that was, that was interesting because now I'm working operational le- ma- matters at the strategic level. Right. So that was interesting. When, when uh, I got an opportunity and it was proposed to me that I take over the executive officer role for the vice commander, I was very hesitant to do it because it was something that was going to be outside of my comfort zone because the vice commander handles all of the business aspects for the command. So the requirements, the resourcing, the budgeting, all of those kind of things. And I just wasn't comfortable with that. So I talked to one of my, he was actually a former commanding officer for the 15th mule on my second go around. He was now a brigadier general and he actually retired as a three-star general. But uh, Brian Boudreau was one of my biggest mentors uh, that I had throughout my career. And he was a fantastic leader, fantastic officer. Uh, no doubt that he was going to pin on stars. And if he had not decided to retire, he would have pinned on a fourth star and been uh, a COCOM somewhere. But General Boudreau pulled me aside one day in the Pentagon. We had lunch and I said, sir, I'm really hesitant to take this role because it's outside my comfort zone. He goes, listen, you know everything you need to know from an operational perspective at the tactical, operational, and strategic level. You now need to know the logistics, the budgeting, the resourcing, all of those things. If you want to have a hope of moving on to the general officer ranks or even just broadening your horizons. And he goes, he goes, what's this uh, general's name that you'd be working for? And I said, Thomas Trask. And he goes, I'm going to look him up. I'm going to tell him that, that he needs to give you this job because it would be good for you. And uh, I, think, I think he honestly followed through on that because when I got back uh, to the office uh, from meetings that I had in the afternoon, they said the decision's already made. You've been selected. So pack up your stuff back in the vault and move up here to the, the general's office. And it was a done deal. So, but it was really good for me. It truly was. General Boudreaux, once again, knew what was best. General Trash was another great mentor, uh, really lot. And that's what exposed me to the Defense Business Board and some of the other, uh, other things that I got a chance to experience in the Pentagon that really kind of drove me to want to go to, uh, to business school here in Texas. Yeah, I mean, it's look, uh, I don't, I'm never going to end up there, um, you know, in, at that level, which, which part of me is okay with. I mean, I'm curious about it, um, you know, but I, I sort of, I don't know. I, I just feel like I'm better in an environment around soldiers. Like, I don't operate well around other high-level folks, you know, because I'm definitely not the smartest guy in the room, uh, and I'm definitely not the, the best at anything in the room. So I don't know that I my, my special powers and skills would be used uh, to – to their full effectiveness. I just, for me personally, I enjoy things on the ground better. You know, I just, I'm always better being around soldiers and leading directly with them. And yes, when you get to the 06 level, it's really hard to do that at certain, you know, junctures in your career. But um, I commend you guys to do it. Look, those, those jobs are necessary. They're needed. You need people with combat experience to get to those positions because ultimately some of those decisions that are being made about what is next in combat are dictated by those people and they need to have the experience and the wherewithal and the, and the knowledge base to be able to uh, 
inject that into the decision-making process. Because y- you get a sense that in the early parts, at least I did, um, that in the early parts of the war on terror, um, there were a lot of old-school thoughts being applied to new-school combat, um, and which is why I felt like we were constantly playing catch-up um, on what it was because, again, the enemy moved as fast, if not faster, than we did to stay ahead of us, and we were still sort of slow on the uptake a lot of times. And th- I think there's an argument for both sides that it was better, but it was worse. But, you know, again, I, I, I know what I was trying to say is that I know that people like you being in those positions at the executive level, at the high-level strategic level, is so important to the success because your experience directly affects the next guy on the ground's experience. One of, to, to that point, Mark, one of the things, uh, uh, and probably one of my most uh, proud moments uh, in my last billet that I was in, which was uh, with headquarters Marine Corps, mm-hmm. was, uh, so we have these, we have these corpsmen called Special Amphibious Reconnaissance Corpsmen, SARCs. And they are fantastic. They go through the same medical training that the uh, 18 Deltas go through for the Special Forces. And uh, they serve in the reconnaissance community, and they serve in the uh, in the MARSOC community. At one time, they used to serve with the SEALs as well, but then the SEALs went away from using the SARCs, and now they have a different method for providing their medical support. But we still have them. But they're constantly in short supply. And while I was working with, uh, with Headquarters Marine Corps, MARSOC brought this up as an operational issue. It was going to start impacting deployments that they were able to do, because if they didn't have a SARC with every element – uh, it was going to provide uh, support for these vastly distributed teams that could become a, a concern. So I got tasked by, uh, so uh, I forget the general that was in charge of MARSOC at the time. He brought it up to the commandant. Commandant handed it off to the DCPP, you know, who I worked for, and he handed it to me. And uh, they brought in uh, the secretary of the Navy, deputy secretary of the Navy. And I worked with somebody from the, the DepSec Def's uh, office, along with CNO's office and then the, the commandant's office. And we were tasked with, with figuring this out. Figure it out, improve retention, and improve the, uh, the accession rate for the SARCs within this community. And I won't bore you with the details, but it, in, in about a year, now we had, we'd, had, we'd gone back to headquarters Marine Corps manpower, and we had said we need to do a manpower study on this and how these guys have been short for this entire time. And what we found out that since 1996, they had constantly been around anywhere from, you try to reach a level of about 90% manpower fill. These guys were in the 70%. At this point that, that we got handed the problem, they were down in the upper 50%. So, that, I mean, they're just hanging above 50% of their, their manpower that they needed in order to support all the deployments. So anything we could do to, to improve that was going to be an improvement upon where they were. So we put together a plan, and I worked very closely with all those folks that I mentioned, and then folks from uh, Millington, Tennessee, where the Navy's personnel center is located. And we came up with a new uh, model that streamlined the, the training program without losing any of the elements. We didn't lose a single element. We just sequenced it better. Uh, so that it would, you'd have less downtime in between, and it was more efficient. Um, we did some additional manpower things with retention incentives, and by the time we left, by the time I, I retired, we had put the first class through, and retention was actually better. You had more, you had improved retention, 
of the forces that were actually still in MARSOC or in the reconnaissance community. And the accession rate and the ones that made it through the initial pipeline, which is a two-year pipeline, was actually higher than it had been in the past. So we had projected it would take five years to get back up to the, the 90% mark. By the time I left and my master gunnery sergeant was still there, he said that they were on track to, to reach that level in about three years. So that would be about a class and a half after we had initiated this. Uh, and that that's huge because you want to talk about operational impact. Yeah, Guys that are going out without a corpsman, without this special amphibious reconnaissance corpsman into some really remote areas, um, that's that can be game-changing. If you don't have somebody there that's going to be able to provide that support to get your ass on a helicopter or on a plane to get you medevac to a higher level of care. So I still take immense pride in the team that we put together for that. And it wasn't me. I mean, I just kind of was, was kind of making sure we were on track, but I mean, it was the, it was the, the, the uh, senior chief that we had, that was an instructor down at the 18 Delta course. It was my master gunnery sergeant. It was the Ockfield sponsors that we had from the Navy side. It was the folks from the Navy admin side. It was the folks from MARSOC that was supportive of this. It was a complete team effort, but I mean, we got this thing done and that's, on par and on track right now to continue to be providing that capability well into the future. So I'm just so happy about that. That's incredible. Um, I know you did 30 years. Was uh, the decision to leave the Marine Corps based off of that, or did they put you out? Did you leave on your own? How does it all come to pass? I I left on my own. It was, it was time. I I had had a, a number of injuries throughout my career and my body was just aching and, uh, I mean, even though I was still scoring well, you know, in the 290 range for my PFT and my CFT, it was a lot, a hell of a lot more painful to, to get those kind of scores. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and I think what finally put me over the edge was when I had my shoulder put back together. And uh, that was kind of like I, I, I had to take myself off jump status. Uh, I can't raise my arm like – you know, I can put my hand back here. I can't do it with this arm. Mm-hmm. So if I had any kind of emergencies under canopy, I couldn't like perform EPs properly. So I made the call, like, I can't do this anymore. And that was the realization that like the, the fun stuff that I did was kind of coming to an end because I just couldn't physically do these things anymore. So I decided that with the knowledge that I had gained in my, in my SOCOM role, uh, I was going to kind of start looking at what the ne- next chapter was going to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's when I started taking a look at business schools, and that's when I found University of Texas, and when we found where we're currently living right now, and you know the house I'm sitting in, and we couldn't be happier with the decisions that we made as far as coming to Texas, coming to the University of Texas, uh, now being a Texas X, uh, and just it's uh, it's phenomenal. Uh, my wife uh, pulled off a miracle uh, because she's just that awesome but we got we got season tickets for uh for texas uh football uh mm-hmm. last year so this is our second year and we love it and uh every every game they have a veteran of the game and uh they do an, uh, you know they let you down on the field to do the coin toss and things like that and my wife nominated me oh wow so i was selected actually and tomorrow is the uh, not tomorrow tomorrow's friday i'm sorry saturday is the game against iowa state when uh, we're all going to be down on the field. So me, my, my beautiful wife, my two uh, lunatic twins, uh, who will probably run around like Benny Hill. That's what I'm, what yeah, I yep, fear. Pretty much. And, uh, but yeah, so we get a chance to do that. I mean, 
you know, had I not come to Texas, had I not gone through McCombs, uh, don't know that that would have happened. And quite honestly, McCombs is actually how I landed the job that I'm in right now with Lower Colorado River Authority as well. I want to get to that in a minute, but I do want to talk about the Honor Foundation because you serve as an ambassador there. Uh, the Honor Foundation is a transition institute for U.S. Special Operations. Uh, they partner with the Navy SEAL Foundation. You know, uh, they tailor executive education, one-on-one coaching, access to a professional network. So they help with that transition. How did you get involved with them? Uh, when I was looking to retire, uh, somebody had brought the Honor Foundation to me. And in fact, I think I had met, I think I had met the new CEO, which was Matt Stevens. Uh, and he may have been the one that brought it up to me. I think I had met him uh, through a mutual friend in the Pentagon. And I reached out, I applied and I, I got in and it was a fantastic program. Absolutely top notch. Uh, it was so much better than, than what the DOD could and any of the services could put on in their one week transition assistance program. This is a three month program that you do two, two significant, I think it was three or four hour nights per week. You have access to executive coaches that, that are assigned to you. Like you get assigned an executive coach. Um, you, you are, are, you're given homework to do, whether it's developing your resume, your value proposition, conducting what we call cups of coffee, just doing virtual networking or, or in-person networking, and just kind of getting your brand out there and doing self-marketing, which as you know, people in the military aren't the best at, and you add to that people from a community that, that really don't like to talk about themselves and, and operate in secrecy for the most part that just don't have the skills to do this self-marketing, which they're going to have to do when they get out and, and start their civilian career. So it gave us the confidence to do that. And some of the symposiums and, and subject matter experts and guests that they brought on, like Simon Sinek, uh, if yeah. you went to one of his, one of his uh, conferences or so on, you'd be paying tens of thousands of dollars for that opportunity. The Honor Foundation brought it to all the fellows, and, uh, and they did a great job. Um, right now, when I went through, they had, I think, three uh, in-person sites. They had, obviously, Coronado, uh, Virginia Beach, and uh, Camp Lejeune. Now they're up to eight. They've expanded. They've got Fort Bragg. They've got Tampa, Eglin Air Force Base. That's six. And uh, I think that those are the those are the in-person ones. And now they're up to two virtual campuses that they run. So they're up they to got, eight. They got to get to Georgia, man. You got, you got to, I mean, between Fort Benning, Fort Gordon, they're, Fort Stewart, you got to get to Georgia, right? They're working on it. They're absolutely working on it. In fact, that was one of the points that was brought up at the, uh, the Honor Foundation uh, benefit dinner that I just attended here in Austin at the Austin Country Club ah. on September 30th. Um, they do this in a number of cities throughout the country, and it's, it's a fantastic night. They've got operators that came from the community that are sitting at the, at the donor tables and the sponsor tables. And then they do testimonials. I gave a testimonial this year at the, at the one in Austin. It's just a fantastic night. They do silent auctions. Um, and awesome. they mentioned specifically Georgia being one of the sites that they want to go to because of the Ranger regiments that are, that are there. Of course, the Ranger yes. regiments are there in the battalions. Yep. Yeah. And uh, by the way, uh, I'll, I'll say this because it always bears worth repeating. Simon Sinek, the one, I mean, of the million great things that I, that guy's ever said, but the one that always stuck with me, and I use this in my – uh, farewell speech when I rotated out of battalion command. The price of leadership is self-sacrifice. It's the best words I've ever heard. The 
price of leadership is self-sacrifice. So remember that everybody That's else right. out there. Um, so you're at the lower Colorado river authority, which sounds very environmental, um, on its surface, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Colorado river, Texas geography, not my strong suit, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure where it all merges, but obviously there is a, uh, there's a job for you there somewhere. Yeah. So the lower Colorado river authority is uh, actually an energy company. Now we were formed in 1932 by the Texas state legislature mm-hmm. in order to control the lower Colorado river, which runs from, Oh, about, I want to say about 300 miles North of Austin, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico and Matagorda Bay. Ah. And the problem was that river was constantly flooding Austin, which was the capital. So we're like, we need to fix this. So the lower Colorado river authority was created in order to build dams to not only provide water for Central Texas, but also hydroelectric power for Central Texas mm. and control the flooding in, in, in the area. So it did those three things. It did them very well. Built, the, built a, a number of dams from uh, Lake Buchanan all the way up north down to uh, the dam that sits right behind where I work uh, called Tom Miller Dam on Lake Austin. And we, we have a number of other smaller dams that provide support to our power plants as well. But they did that, and they did it very well. And uh, I mean, we we set the standard, quite honestly, for for a river authority uh, in Texas, if not nationwide. We branched out uh, into power generation, so we've got some power generation plants, and then uh, electronic or electricity transmission as well from power plants to the actual end distributors. So we don't provide it to your house, but we provide it to the people that do provide it to your house. Gotcha. And. So we've, we've grown significantly. We've also got a park system and we also do uh, telecommunications as well. So it is, it's, it's, it's a small conglomerate of, of individual business units that comprise the lower Colorado river authority. We just kept the name that we've had since we were formed almost a hundred years ago. I I would argue that uh, next order of business is just to change the name of the river, not the company. Because I don't know why the Colorado River sits in Texas, you know. But, hey, listen, like I said, geography left me a long time ago. Pouring a gallon of information into a shot glass of a brain, Keith, you're bound to spill some. You see what I'm saying? So, oh, I hear that. Laws of physics all the time. But, uh, it, it, look, it's amazing. Uh, I know you're still with the Honor Foundation now, uh, continuing to do work there as well. Um, I mean, 30 years is just it, – it's incredible to see how much I'm – never, I'm never uninspired by how much people can fit into – into 30 years. And yes, it's a very long time, but it's just like when you do this thing for as long as we've done it, um, you never really feel like as you're going through it, that there's this big mountain that you've scaled and you stand at the top and go, look, I did it. You know, like I, 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 cause you're always so mission focused as we talked about earlier, right? You're always so worried about, you know, the, the job in front of you and then the next job that they hand you and everything else. And so uh, I, I marvel at, at how much you were able to go through uh, and, and survive and, and, you know, imparting so much knowledge on other people around you and being able to affect the organization in such a great way. So uh, it's been absolutely incredible to hear all your, all of your story. Well, Mark, I've, I've listened to a number of your podcasts, not all of them, but quite a few of them. And I've learned quite a bit about your, your service as well. So thank you for that. And thank you for what you're doing right now with uh, the hazard ground, because this is getting information out that, you know, hopefully maybe somebody will listen to it and didn't know about the honor foundation. Well, and we'll hear about it, or maybe there's some, something that, that I brought up or you brought up in our, in our conversation today that will resonate with them that, you know, much like it did for, for you and I, when we were junior officers that will resonate with them. And I, I can only hope that because that's what we're doing right now. I'm trying to pay it forward yep. to the next generation that may be listening to this. 
that's the most important thing. It's not about me. Like it wasn't about, but about me when I had Marines, it's about what can I do for the next, next guys that are going through that may have to fight in a, in a, in another battle coming up that may be even more high intense than what I saw. So that's the most important thing. So what you're doing right now is God bless you, brother. Well, thank you. I, I genuinely appreciate it. I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, we get comments from people who say, you know, uh, this guest, like, I feel exactly like they do. I, I finally found somebody who knows what I feel like, or, or I finally found somebody that understands what I'm thinking and feeling. And that, you know, is, as you said, is part of the reason why we're still at this for almost six years here on the Hazard Ground, just because I, I, there were so many secondary things I never thought would happen from doing this show. I just thought we were, I wanted to tell great stories and I wanted to share people's stories because I thought they all had value. Big, smaller, and different. I think everybody's story and everybody's service has some value. It's all part of the pie. Um, and, and I just didn't think from a secondary effort, we'd have such a positive effect on, on mental health and on, you know, uh, people's ability to, to relate to others and go get the help that they need. And, you know, I, I'll punctuate it with my own personal, you know, struggles and things that I finally decided to go take a look at after many years post-combat and, and finally, you know, open up boxes and peel back layers that I hadn't done for a really long time. So, you know, this has been a, a journey for all of us, and every new person that comes into it, I think we welcome into the Hazard Ground community with open arms, and, you know, we sort of just, you know, link up, and, and we're all together now, and I think it's just another way to bring us all back into that brotherhood, sisterhood that we, we spent so long doing and so many critical, important years of our lives doing. So I, I thank you for the warm thoughts. I certainly appreciate it. It's, it's, it's humbling to hear um, distinguished folks like yourself, you know, be able to get some value out of, out of, out of everything we're doing. So, so thank you. Mark, if I can put a, a punctuation sure. mark on the uh, on the mental health issue, and absolutely, I, I like you. I, I had I had some demons that I struggled with, mm-hmm. and a lot of those kind of came out after my twins were born. It was it was things that I saw happen to civilians and to kids when when I was in combat, and that that really kind of came out when when my kids were born, and I struggled with it since. But uh, even before that, like I knew that there were, I knew that I had some problems and I talked to, I, I like when I had Marines, young Marines that had issues and I, I recognized it for what it was like, Hey, this is a, this is a, this is a PTSD issue. He's right. acting out for these reasons. I pulled them in a couple of times. So there were, there were four or five instances that I can think off the top of my head. I pulled the Marine in, I pull his platoon commander, platoon sergeant, company commander and company first sergeant in along with my sergeant major. And I'd have a discussion and it generally went like this, like, listen, you're screwing up by the numbers. Okay. And it's not going to last much longer. So you got a couple choices. You can continue going down this path and it's going to end badly for you. Or you can do what I've done and start thinking about this and start getting help that you need. I sought help. And here I am. I'm a battalion commander. So there's no stigma to it. There's sure as hell no stigma in my, in my unit. And if there's anything that we can get across, and I'll, I'll be honest, Admiral McRaven and General Botel were, were big proponents of this as well yeah. to reduce the stigma so people could get help. But I think that resonated with them like, holy crap, my battalion commander called me in here and thought enough to like know that I'm having some problems. Yeah. Didn't like kick me in the ass or give me a kick in the ass, but didn't like, you know, charge me for, for my stupidity, but he wants me to get help. And he's telling me that he got help. So that was something that I, that I still do. And if I say that to anybody and anybody hears that and they, they decide, hey, you know what, I'm going to make that call to the VA helpline or I'm going to make that call to, you know, uh, one source or whoever it may be. I hope they do that because 
There should be no stigma associated with it. Things that you've done mm-hmm. in the name of your country, in the name of saving your teammates, you know, you need to get all the help. You deserve all the help that you can get. And, and, and I'll add to anybody who's still in the service listening, if you're a chain of command and their whole goal and desire, if you approach them with this, isn't to get you back into the fight, then go find a new chain of command. That's generally the best piece about it because that should be the ultimate goal. It's not only to get you better. It's to get you better to get you back into the fight. Just like if you had broken your leg and doing a jump, the goal would be to get you better and get you back in the fight. You have something exactly. broken mentally, get you better, get you back in the fight, and that should be the goal. And if your chain of command isn't on that same page, then go get a new chain of command. I, honestly, that's, that's what this needs to boil down to because um, the goal isn't to put people out of our organization. The goal is to retain good people, and, and good people have had to do some bad things, and there's a, there's a litany of things that come along with that. Um, that we can't necessarily dissociate. And it's not up to us to dissociate for anybody. It's not up to me to dissociate. Hey, Keith, just, you know, get back in there. You'll be fine. You know, don't worry about it, man. Everything's going to be okay. Like, that's not for me to decide for you, nor is it for anybody else, especially soldiers under my command. The best I can do is for soldiers under my command is is let them know that I'm going to get you back in the fight. You know, I'm going to do everything I can to get you back in. Ultimately, there may be a doctor along the way, and we all run this risk, right? There may be a doctor along right. the way who says, you cannot do this anymore. This will end up with you being X, Y, and Z or dead or whatever. Um, that's the risk you have to take. But the chain of command's goal is to get you back in the fight, right? Because that's what's a, a big barrier now to, to soldiers, airmen, Marines, whatever it may be, coming forward is because they don't want to lose their career. That's right. And, and, and you got to make them think past that. Like, it's not just your, not just your career. Your career's going to be here for 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, but you've got your family, you've got, you know, whether you're married or not, whether you've got kids or not, you've got your family, you've got your friends, you got to be around for them too. You got to be around for yourself. 100%. You got a hell of a lot yeah. longer to go than, than 20 years. You're going to live past 40. So yeah, great words. Well, great I, words. I really appreciate it, man. This has been fantastic. No, I love you. talking with you and I, I'm, I'm really, really honored that you, you gave me the opportunity to do this. So I want to thank you so much, no. brother. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Wonderful to hear your story. Continued success with the Honor Foundation and uh, everything on the civilian side. Best of luck with the twins. It's always a blast. Never a dull moment with either one of them. Keith Perry, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Yep. Take care. Hook them horns. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.